NATO, from my experience, is a very bureaucratic and deliberative body, but we've only known a sort of a peacetime NATO. It was basically assumed um, in the West among NATO circles that it would be the Baltic states, that Russia would attack uh, the Baltic states and try and separate them essentially from the rest of NATO. That's more complicated now because Finland adds a gigantic border with NATO. I think Russia would actually very quickly find itself short of um, some of its most vital systems, its air defense, its aircraft. If there were a high intensity, full scale conflict between NATO and Russia, unless unless it immediately went nuclear in the sense that, you know, de-escalation had to happen or there would be a nuclear exchange, um, I think any conventional action would have to include Ukraine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Ukraine, a show where the newsroom of the Kyiv Independent dives into Ukraine's biggest events of the week and explains them in just 30 minutes. I'm your host, Masha Lavrova. Today, we're talking about the risk of an escalation between Russia and NATO, and if Europe is ready for a potential Russian attack. For the very first time, we're sitting down with somebody outside of the Kyiv Independent, more specifically Marcel Plikta, a security expert who is a fellow at the Global Law and Governance Center in the University of St. Andrews, and a former intelligence analyst at the U.S. Department of Defense. Marcel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Before we go on, I would like to remind you guys to subscribe to the Kyiv Independent wherever you're listening to this show. Like us, rate us, and leave comments. It will take you only a few seconds, but it really goes a long way for us. Your support is important to us. Thanks to you, we can ensure more people can stay informed about the news in Ukraine. Okay, Marcel, thanks again for joining us today. So we wanted to talk to you about the growing concern in the West about the risk of Russian attack against NATO and the apparent preparations that are seemingly already on their way for this kind of a crazy scenario. So to begin, I wanted to ask you, what do you think the warnings of an escalation between NATO and Russia, you know, been piling up recently Mm. and why now? That's an interesting question. Why now? Why now is probably because Russia has been engaged in Ukraine for over close to two years now, over two years now. And they are seeing sort of a weakening of resolve, I think, from the West, or at least what perceives to be a weakening of resolve from the West. You're seeing, you know, American politicians sort of uh, use Ukraine as a sort of a, a chess piece a little bit back and forth. And I think that they see an opportunity to exert more pressure, more pressure on NATO, more pressure on the alliance, especially with, you know, elections coming up in a lot of NATO countries and and increasing questions from the U.S. on if a Republican candidate wins, if they would pursue, uh, you know, maybe leaving NATO or reducing their commitment to Europe. And so I think that's starting to explain a lot of Russian behavior, especially towards the Baltics, with the movement of their population, with the seemingly growing number of spy scandals as well. The, the arrests of prominent Russian spies, or at least uh, prominent to us, people who were, you know, professors for, for years and years in Russian studies. So if Russia were to attack NATO, mm-hmm. what do you think that would look like? I mean, can we make any broad predictions on the direction or strategy and which country would be at the increased risk? Yeah, it would. Russia's, Russia's ability to attack NATO is a little bit more complicated now than it was before because of Sweden and Finland joining. Initially, it was basically assumed in the West among NATO circles, that it would be the Baltic states, that Russia would attack the Baltic states and try and separate them essentially from the rest of NATO. And it would be very difficult for NATO to reinforce the Baltics before the Baltic states fell. This was, this was the assumption. This wasn't necessarily the case. That's more complicated now because Finland adds a gigantic border with NATO. So it's still likely 
probably the Baltics, probably Poland that, that are at the most risk because Russia shares a large border with them. Belarus shares a large border with them. But it's more complicated now for Russia just because there's now more allies and there's more preparation. These signs would would look a lot like what the lead up to Ukraine looked like, where you see a massive mobilization of Russian forces. You would see the trainings. Uh, yeah, trainings, um, disinformation, right? Uh, claims that this is an exercise. Um, and then probably an increase in hybrid tactics, right? Uh, so that would be disinformation, hacking, um, perhaps uh, more more attempts to stir up uh, discontent for uh, Russian Russian speaking populations within the Baltic states. Uh, so you would see you would see a lot of activity. However, I think that for a long time there was an assumption that Russia could pull it off, that Russia could in three days, you know, um, uh, seize the Baltics and, and yeah, take Kiev, right? Yeah, and 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 this this was a very strong assumption, and it's an assumption I saw repeated after the initial invasion from from very prominent international relations scholars saying, oh, if you look at a map, you know, Russia can obviously launch a surprise attack. But what we saw is in, in the case of Ukraine, that everyone was very aware that there was Russian activity. The question was, was he going to go for it or was he going to back down? OK, let's say something happened, escalation, you know, mm -hmm. happened. Do you think mm -hmm. Article 5 would be involved or do you think NATO would come up with some bureaucratic loophole to, you know, avoid war at all cost? I think that a armed attack would would trigger Article 5. I think that the essentially the state that is being invaded has a decision. They can choose Article 4, which is consultation, or Article 5, which is, you know, rally around the flag, we've we've been attacked. Poland, for instance, invoked Article 4 when they when the missile fell in their territory for consultations, and Turkey does it all the time. But I think that, you know, a state like Estonia and and Latvia and Lithuania, they're very keyed into the threat Russia poses. And so I think that they would they would invoke Article Five in the event of in the event of an armed armed attack. Well, I guess that's I don't know if that's good news or bad news. It's <laughs> it's a very difficult topic to figure out where yeah. where the good the, where the line is. Yeah, it's it's striking a balance because essentially what NATO needs to do is prove to Russia that that it's not worth invading NATO, invading NATO or a NATO country pays no dividends. And mm -hmm. so that requires a lot of posturing, but that posturing itself, you know, it from some circles can be seen as escalatory from for domestic populations can be seen as escalatory. So it's it's about striking a balance between showing resolve and not not yourself escalating into into a conflict. So would you say NATO is ready for war with Russia? You know, how would anyone mm. be able to assess the readiness? Yeah. Well, I don't think I don't think anyone could be could be ready for for a conflict of of that magnitude. But I think that I think that there are steps that NATO countries are taking for readiness. But this varies across the alliance. I think you see, for instance, Poland has shifted. I think they're spending nearly four percent of their GDP on on defense now. And even even smaller countries like Lithuania are interested in procuring tanks, which they had you know gotten rid of decades ago because they didn't think it was worth the cost. So, so there is an effort. There is an effort to establish readiness, and some of it goes back to 2014 at the Wales summit. One of the things that NATO did was they established the NATO Readiness Force, um, and this was an attempt to have some kind of rapid response if if a crisis went down, and and that's sort of evolved and and still continues to this day. Um, at the same time, uh, I think there's a disconnect between the general population and perhaps. Military leadership, military leadership in a lot of NATO countries emphasizes wanting wanting bigger budgets, wanting increased defense. In the UK, there were there's increasing focus on the lack of manpower 
for yeah. specifically the army and recruiting issues. This this led to some misperceptions about what some generals said and and a lot of jokes about conscription coming back. Yeah, um, I saw it, I saw a lot mm-hmm. of TikToks about that. People just kind of freaking out. Yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of a strange scenario. I don't I don't actually think that there will be conscription, but it was it was a general saying that there should be sort of societal readiness for a conflict. The societal readiness makes conflict less likely. And in the UK, the government decided to score some points by saying, uh, no, there won't be conscription. And then everyone who could have been conscripted, which are 18 to 22 year olds, immediately said, please don't conscript us on TikTok. On TikTok. So, um, yeah. yeah. Um, but but in in general, for readiness, you know, we you know, there there is movement there. Um, but I think that very few NATO countries would say that they are ready. So, you know, in this hypothetical scenario where is ukraine left in this situation Mm. since you know so much of russia's military is on ukraine's territory do you think nato would fight back russians inside ukraine i think yeah i think anything's possible in in a full-blown high high intensity conflict um i think that i think that if 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 russia were to invade a nato country nato would have to respond by like destroying russia's ability to threaten nato countries again and I think that does mean um, that does mean uh, supporting Ukraine more more directly. Um, and you know, I'm I'm hesitant about drawing about drawing comparisons to World War II and things like that. But you know, in world wars, in in large conflicts like that, you see you see people who aren't formally in an alliance um, cooperating closely, fighting alongside each other. So so I think I think definitely that if if there were a high intensity full scale conflict between NATO and Russia unless unless it immediately went toward went nuclear in the sense that in the sense that you know de-escalation had to happen or there would be a nuclear exchange um i think any conventional action would have to include ukraine it would have to include um you know uh, russians fighting in ukraine and and perhaps perhaps even you know russians abroad in in africa and other places do we know you know, what would that look like if something happens? Like how fast mm-hmm. the response would be? Would we a- able to see some sort of response or would it take, you know, months of uh, discussion and deliberation between? <laughs> yeah, well, the NATO. So the the NATO readiness force, uh, I believe, I believe is designed to respond pretty quickly um, within within 72 hours for, for the United States. At least you could see boots on the ground from Stuttgart and Germany and other places pretty, pretty quickly. Um, I think the I think it's those first couple days that are key, um, because if if Russia is able to uh, in in the in the context of an invasion, if Russia were able to seize a lot of NATO territory in the same way that they they seized a lot of Ukrainian territory, then NATO faces a lot of uh, a lot of the same dilemma of you know uh, how do we take it back, how fast can we take it back, and then the added you know how do we take it back without without uh, prompting a nuclear exchange. It's not quite as bad as some make out. It wouldn't take months and months of deliberation. NATO, from my experience, is a very bureaucratic and deliberative body. Um, but we've only known a, a, a sort of a peacetime NATO. A NATO, you know, at least at least in my experience, right? A NATO where there's no Soviet Union and and the alliance was trying to figure out, you know, uh, why they exist, what roles they can play in, in a world without great power competition. And now great power competition is back. So I think that uh, I think that you know, as much as NATO loves deliberating um, in a crisis, I think I think it'll be a very rapid response. Well, yeah. I mean, is there a way for us to compare industrial military capability between Russia and NATO? I mean, does mm-hmm. West have enough weapons or can it produce them mm-hmm. enough to match Russia? 
I'm asking because, you know, mm. a lot of stockpiles, Western stockpiles have been given to mm. Ukraine in the last two years and production mm. has been pretty slow. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and that's another, that's another factor of readiness that, that I did neglect to talk about is, is this issue of, um, weapons production. I mean, in terms of, in terms of comparing economies on the biggest sense, you know, NATO countries, I believe are just under, under half of the world's G, uh, G, GDP. So under, under half of the world's economy essentially comes from NATO, but obviously most of that is oriented towards the civilian economy, right? Building, uh, building Volkswagens and, uh, you know, and such. The question is, you know, if if there's some sort of crisis, um, if there's a long enough lead up between when the crisis, when when a crisis starts and when uh, when a Russian invasion would happen, there would be a chance to ramp up production. Um, but I think there would be some slim there would be some slim times in the middle. Essentially, I think that NATO has been holding back some of its stockpiles um, for its own for its own defense to prevent this situation from happening. But at the same time, that's fair. At the same time, a, a, you know, a large number of NATO countries have donated a significant amount of their military stockpiles to Ukraine. Um, and, and increasingly, sort of their focus has also been diverted a bit. More resources have gone into the Middle East as a result of several different, uh, you know, confrontations uh, that are happening there. In the medium to long term, um, as soon as industry gets the sense that, go- that NATO governments are willing to shell out cash, uh, they absolutely will shift production. They absolutely will you know, be able to very rapidly uh, produce and, and governance will be very, will be able to procure. Um, but there is, there is, I guess there is a question mark over that first kind of month or so. I think Russia would actually very quickly find itself short of um, some of its most vital systems, its air defense, its aircraft, um, because NATO, NATO aircraft that haven't been fighting a war for so long, you know, as much as we like to talk about stockpiles, I think NATO probably between them has probably five times as many planes as Russia does. Um, so, so you, so you could very quickly see a scenario where, where Russia is short of its high tech equipment and, um, and, and NATO is able to use, you know, more of its advanced things to, as a force multiplier, um, to get around maybe, maybe a short-term shortage or maybe a short-term bottleneck, um, of things. And you, you might also see other actors coming in and, and sensing an opportunity. Uh, South Korea, for instance, has, has found it, uh, <laughs> very, very, um, very profitable, um, you know, that as a as, as a weapons exporter and as a weapons exporter that deals in, in NATO calibers for for shells and other kinds of weapons. Um, so so, yeah, I mean, there is a risk um, in, in the early stages of a conflict of of potential shortages. But at the same time, I think it's more of an open question. It's not necessarily a case of um, uh, NATO soldiers, you know, running out of ammunition on, on day three. It's more uh, it's more a question in, you know, the medium term, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Well, talking about soldiers, one of the Mm -hmm. other things that really differentiates Russia and the collective West is Mm -hmm. in when it comes to warfare is their treatment of soldiers. I mean, we've seen Mm -hmm. Russia's willingness to use its hundreds of thousands of citizens as cannon fodder in this Mm -hmm. war in Ukraine. Do you think that would be a problem for NATO? Because Russia is an enormous country with a lot of people that they're seemingly happy to mobilize at their own, mm. you know, as much as they need to, that approach wouldn't really work in a democratic European country. Yes. Well, well, historically, there have been cases where, where democracies have mobilized. I think that, I think that, you know, in the context of an invasion where democracies have a sense that they are being attacked, you very quickly see populations get over it a bit. You know, 
as as much as as much as TikTok in the UK complains about conscription, for instance, if the general population is afraid, you would very quickly see volunteers and mobilization. At the same time, NATO militaries tend to treat their uh, their uh, soldiers a little bit better than than Russia does. Uh, you would you would not yeah definitely you you wouldn't necessarily see humid wave attacks. Um, you wouldn't you wouldn't see an interest, and and that's why most NATO countries invest so much in technologies because they want to avoid a sort of a World War One situation where they've they throw an entire generation the enemy and, and hope it works. So so yeah, I mean, there's also the issue, I guess, of mass that 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 if Russia, you know, in the short term already has a lot of soldiers conscripted, already has a lot of soldiers mobilized, that it will be challenging for for the first NATO troops that engage them. There, there would be lots more Russians. However, in the medium to long term, you would start to see democratic nations passing conscription. You would start to see the fact that NATO countries overall have a larger population than Russia really start to tell. I think there is a question on of Russia's use of civilians in the sense that, you know, if they're currently willing to threaten the Baltic's borders, right, by using their civilians as sort of migrants, right, as, as sort of a bargaining chip. Would they be willing to complicate NATO's operations by having lots of civilians around in places that NATO is trying to bomb? And I think I think that could be that could be challenging because because generally, despite NATO's reputation, generally they they don't wish to to bomb civilians. So so that could be challenging as well. Russia's ability to mobilize its its citizens and sort of fend their lives uh, willy nilly could be a challenge, but I don't necessarily think that it's it would be a game changer in a conflict between them. Do you think? You know, talking about conscription and mobilization, mm -hmm. do you think there would be an issue, for example, for people be willing to fight when there's no war in their actual country? Because, you know, Ukrainians mm -hmm. are obviously defending our country and our mm -hmm. freedom. And mm -hmm. there's a very clear understanding why people have to be mm -hmm. mobilized. I don't know if the same situation in Russia, but, you know, when mm -hmm. the war is not actually happening in your home country, is it a different? Mm -hmm. would you, do you think there would be challenge there? Yeah, I mean, I think from some corners, certainly, I think there would be there would be people who who, for ethical reasons, don't believe in war at all and would refuse to engage in it. I think that there would be sort of a a why die for Danzig sort of crowd, which is you know the sense of uh, you know the war's very far away. I live in the UK. I live in the US. I live in Portugal. Why should I go and fight? Yeah, I'll be safe here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. At the same time, though, um, uh, these countries are bound essentially obligated to go to war. And I think that I think that, you know, given given the way that the West reacted to the initial stages of the of the invasion of Ukraine, where where I saw people who were, you know, 18 or 19 years old, because I was, you know, I was teaching at a university, you know, very, uh, very overwrought, very emotional, very, uh, you know, I think I think there would be a bit of a rally around the flag effect. And I think that you know, the footage, right, would, would start coming out. You would see, you know, on, on flooding on social media, you would see, you know, the same things that happened in Ukraine, Lithuanian towns or Latvian towns or Estonian towns burned, you know, and things like that. Yeah, so I think crimes, that I think, all that. Yeah, war crimes. Absolutely. I mean, when when I was in Lithuania, I was given a, a, a handbook that they had for what to do in disasters. And, and it was heavily implied the disaster would be an invasion. Wow. And and it was stuff like have a plan to leave the house. And some of it was, you know, if you see if you see occupying soldiers committing war crimes, record it and send it to the BBC. Um, so, so why didn't we have a handbook yeah. like that? I mean, I, <laughs> well, I'm wondering. Well, I'm wondering how widespread it was because it was printed in English. So I'm wondering if they weren't 
they weren't handing it to me because I was visiting for a, <laughs> you know, for a NATO, for a NATO thing. I think, you know, it's, it's helpful to have a handbook like that generally, because it also applies to natural disasters. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I do, I do think that, I do think that NATO wouldn't have trouble getting, getting a number of volunteers early on. I think conscription wouldn't necessarily be strongly opposed, mm-hmm. particularly if there's a sense that I think it would also depend on messaging, right? Um, I think governments do have to sell their populations and democracies on conflict, particularly conflict that's not necessarily on their border. But I think it's an increasingly easy case to make, um, you know, since since Chechnya, since Georgia, since Syria, since Ukraine twice. You know, it's it's quite clear that 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 Russia is willing to uh, is continues to be aggressive, isn't isn't necessarily willing to, you know, uh, back down or make stop at Ukraine. Right. Or make or make reasonable what we consider to be reasonable decisions. Mm -hmm. That was a big problem in the West is we thought, you know, and if if we were Russia, we wouldn't invade Ukraine. So therefore, Russia wouldn't invade Ukraine. Yeah, let's hope they're as good as we are. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But but, you know, our hope failed us, I suppose. And so I think there is a lot more recognition now of of the threat Russia poses. Okay, so you know, going back to the warfare and mm. the war in Ukraine has been highly technological. I've heard, you know, I've seen many articles mm-hmm. calling this the war of drones and mm-hmm. you know, new drones and technologies are being developed all the time. Do you mm-hmm. think NATO would be able to keep up with this pace? Yes and no. I think I think that the most interesting the most interesting thing from especially the Ukrainian side of innovation is how decentralized it is, especially when it comes to drones, right? The, the, the army of drones is not necessarily a bunch of identical, you know, drones all in a row made by the same company out of the same factory. It's, it's a lot of people in small workshops. Yeah, literally know, people in their homes are creating drones for the soldiers in Ukraine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, I've spoken with, with some, some more senior Ukrainian officials and they, and they basically said, yeah, that's by design. You know, we've, We've built requirements and, and we've essentially worked in the idea that, that people in workshops might be submitting drones to us. That, that has trade-offs, of course, because you, you don't necessarily have the same level of standardization. It can be trickier to train people if, you know, one day they have one kind of drone and another, another time they have the next kind of drone. For NATO, I think there's a bit of an advantage in the sense that NATO enjoys a lot of technologically sophisticated systems at the start, but that tends to be in the realm of you know, the F-35 or tanks, when it comes to small drones, like the kinds that Ukraine are using, there is a sense that they're behind. And there are efforts to, to rectify it, but, but these move at the pace of, not at the pace of a bunch of citizens working together, but at the pace of government organizations and bureaucracies. And we know that doesn't work really fast. Yeah, no, definitely not. It can, it can, uh, you know, in emergencies. But the problem is Russia has shown that it's willing to you know, enter a crisis and, and invade very quickly. And there's a question of reaction time there as well. But, you know, I was talking with, talking with an officer in the UK military who, who is now, his unit is now in the, the joint, the NATO readiness force, the very specifically the very fast reaction force, the one that's supposed to be there in 24 hours. And he was saying for training, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine uses 10,000 drones a month, right? It burns through 10,000 drones a month. For his training, his unit was given 50, and they had to not break any of them because the next, the next unit had to use those drones. Um, so mm-hmm. there's, there's a sense that they might be learning the lessons, but they're not necessarily responding very quickly. That said, you know, some of the, some of the drones that were given to Ukraine, like the Switchblade, you know, were, were longstanding U.S. technology. So it's possible to, you know, very quickly scale up. 
but you know nature of crises is that they're sudden so you would you would probably see a lot of nato units go to war without you know the number of drones that that a ukrainian unit of similar size would have so what do you think nato can learn from ukrainian experience fighting against russian i think there's been a lot of focus on ukraine's tactical innovations and the tactical situation so there's a lot more focus now on artillery on mass on drones this idea that nato had a long standing idea that you know precision weapons could instead of instead of having you know 100 unprecise weapons you could have one precise weapon and this would reduce costs and reduce the need for for large numbers of munitions but what what ukraine has shown is that even when there's precision weapons you still need lots of mass you still need lots of people you still need lots of artillery and so i think there's You know, I was talking earlier about the difference between what the population thinks and what the military thinks. The militaries are trying to adjust to this reality. It's not necessarily something populations are interested in yet because it requires, you know, if you if you want to buy a lot of shells, if you want to buy a lot of weapons, if you want to recruit a lot of people into the military, that means more budget and that means more more tax dollars. At least in the UK where I am, right? You have populations who you know their mortgages are more expensive you know power, electricity and power is getting more expensive and so and so they're they're asking the question you know why should my tax dollars go here why should my tax dollars go there and you know it's it is the responsibility of those governments to pitch it to sell it to to explain to their populations but you know that's an uneven process across all of nato's members so i mean the reason i wanted to have this conversation with you because just over a week ago nato began its 2024 exercise steadfast defender who is said to be the largest NATO exercise since the Cold War. How significant are these exercises and do they tell us anything about NATO's approach to Russia and its threats? I think what the exercise and and there are similar there are similar other exercises being conducted although much smaller is is that the alliance is taking the prospect of conventional war with Russia much more seriously. You know, you you had NATO frequently did, did exercises prior, but they tended to be smaller in scale or focused on niche capabilities, focused on naval operations or joint counterterrorism or special forces and and this reflected nato's priorities back then which were you know operations like libya for instance or or the balkans now now nato exercises are much more focused on conventional warfare in europe and so you see you see steadfast defender and you see especially exercises in the arctic or sort of in the in the high north aimed very much at this idea of Russian escalation and and Russian invasion. We're going to move to a question from our community. There's actually several, but I'm going to I'm going to ask you this one. So, are the Putin-friendly states ready to confront him in a military context and commit their military? With the context of, you know, the right-leaning states have throughout the conflict with Ukraine drawn out negotiations and uh, you know, displayed hesitancy to conflict with Russia and Russian interests. Mm. This uh, by by Putin-friendly states you mean sort of like the Hungarys, like members of members of NATO who are I'm assuming uh, yeah, I'm assuming yeah. that's what they meant. I think that states like Hungary are are take a different approach. I think that I think definitely <laughs> I think that definitely um you know, uh, Hungary is a little bit more friendly to Putin than we would like. I, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily think that they would ignore um, something as serious as Article Five, something as serious as a as a flagrant uh, invasion. I, um, I I think that they would they would join. I think that even if it's half hearted, they would have to deploy their militaries. Um, they're sort of obligated under treaty to do that. 
it would be very hard to tell what would happen if they didn't. Um, I, I do think that we're somewhat lucky in that the number of NATO states that have any interest in dealing with Putin are fairly few. Um, even, uh, you know, even when it comes to states like Slovakia, right, who just had an election and they elected someone um, much, much less, uh, I would say, I don't want to say hostile to Ukraine, but definitely cooler on the idea of supporting Ukraine. They themselves are investing very heavily in defense um, and buying weapons from from the U.S. So I think that, you know, when push comes to shove, I think that these states would would join would join with NATO. I mean, I mean, would fulfill their obligations to NATO as members. I guess the only thing to add would be this question of NATO NATO readiness for for hybrid warfare. And I've sort of I've sort of brought this up, but, you know, the I think that the best way to deter Russia is is sort of showing resolve, is showing strength. And so and so being able to prevent, you know, uh, little green men or being able to stop cyber attacks or catch spies. These things are the prelude that would build Russian confidence that, that they could, you know, uh, do an invasion at all. Um, and so and so stopping stopping those being able to counter those effectively, you know, is is the first step to deterring Russia um, in in my view. And then I guess the very, very final thing would be. Um, understanding, I guess, getting a sense of what Russia would even want from an invasion of NATO at this point. Um, if, you know, on the, there was, you know, the widespread conception was that they would want the Baltics because, you know, between, uh, 1917 to 1991, they had occupied the Baltics and they, they see it as Russian and they'd like it back. Yeah. Is there historic um, land? But with historic, yeah, historic, yeah. The, the historic lands that didn't belong to them where the people don't speak the language and don't share the culture, but mm-hmm. the, uh, <laughs> But if if Finland if Finland has now you know Finland has now joined NATO NATO is now much more ready than it was you know in in 2014 and 2015. So if 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 it's Russia's view that you know and Putin's view and I'm not saying that it is but if it were their view that that they wouldn't be able to secure the Baltics that they wouldn't be able to gain much by launching an invasion the odds of a of an outright war are significantly lower. So I think that's another thing to consider is how confident is Russia that they could get something from a war with NATO. Um, Marcel, thanks so much for coming to the show. We're really happy to have you here. Thanks for having me on. You can find the show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to like, comment wherever you listen to this podcast. And make sure to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Please support The Kiev Independent by donating or becoming a member of our community. You can do that by going to kievindependent.com membership and becoming a member. Also, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Thank you for listening.